Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 102. Last week we saw where Jesus and his disciples were generally headed towards Jerusalem for Passover. And he had a stop in Bethany before that where he had a dinner with Martha, Mary, uh, Lazarus. And we had this very thought-provoking image of Mary pouring this expensive ointment that's made from nard on Jesus' feet, anointing him, wiping uh, his feet with her hair. And we, we had some pushback from one of the disciples, Judas, who he's, he seems to be yeah. indicating that he is wanting the ointment to be sold for benefit of the poor but the text shows us that his heart was actually not in the right place uh, but Jesus defends Mary's actions and says that you know she's prepared me for my burial and you're not going to always have me with you but you're always going to have the poor to be able to take care of uh, just a really really cool image and showcases Mary's faith even more and then we ended the week with Jesus doing this very strange thing that we didn't close where he asked two of his disciples to go into the village next to them and get a donkey that's tied or a colt and bring them to him. And then he was referencing some scripture uh, to defend why he was doing that. Some messianic implications going on. Yeah, that's right. We weird for us we just like stopped right in the middle of a story when do we ever do that so yeah we uh never <laughs> yeah so yeah let's continue from there uh this uh, touches on all of the gospels so there's a uh it's not a lot of text in any one place but it's in matthew chapter 21 verses 6 and 7 mark chapter 11 verses 4 through 7 Luke chapter 19 verses 32 to 35 and we're actually going to pull just a little bit of John's account out of order just so that everybody's talking about the same thing at the same time we're going to John chapter 12 verses 14 and 15 I guess you know what I'm going to read from Luke chapter 19 so here we go so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Okay, that doesn't seem too hard. Yeah, so what happened here? I guess maybe we should just note that the, the two who were sent, well, they followed their instructions. It's always a good thing. Uh, and they found everything to be just as Jesus had told them, which, you know, that's always kind of cool. Somebody kind of predicting the future or whatever. So they go ahead and they untie this cult to take it. And then, you know, depending if you're thinking of Matthew's account, you're taking them, whatever. But in Matthew, nobody says anything about it. In Mark, some, some people question them. We don't know who they are. It's just some people. But here in Luke, it's the owners that question them. And, you know, again, it's that whole thing of eyewitness accounts. But without any better options, they just tell them exactly what Jesus had told them, and that was that the Lord has need of it. And I don't know, strangely, apparently, that was good enough. Now, maybe they were already Jesus fans or something. We don't know. Or maybe there was some sort of supernatural influence happening in that moment. Uh, again, we don't know. And, and maybe things had been worked out in advance. You know, they, they, they hey, by the way, uh, when we come into town, we need to borrow your donkey. Uh, it doesn't say anything about that. 
you know, you kind of think they would have mentioned it, but I guess it's possible. We don't really know. But anyway, it's all kind of cool and special. I, I did want to make a quick note about this young donkey, though. And it depends on which version you're reading. If you read all four Gospels, you get a, a, a better picture. But it talks about this being a young donkey that's never been ridden. Now, there are a few commentaries that I was reading. They mentioned that this animal would not normally have just, you know, accepted this idea of people throwing cloaks on him and especially a rider without a fight. And and probably in my mind, the best picture to get in your head, it's that classic American picture where you've got a wild horse being broken by a cowboy. And, and at least from what I understand, I don't personally know anything about this, a young donkey can be just as rebellious or, or difficult for a rider as any young horse that hasn't already been broken. So it's possible that as we read this, this also might be something a little supernatural going on. We don't know it for sure because it doesn't say it explicitly, but given who we're talking about and the story that we've seen thus far, there's nothing really surprising that it could be supernatural. But it is just a little bit odd that that all of the Gospels treat it like it's just, you know, ordinary. Now, you can view it any way you wish. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you probably know, at least for me, I'm guessing maybe even for us, you know, when we're reading and there's an option for a supernatural view, well, we're going to lean that way. We just like it. But it doesn't make it right. But anyway, that's all I got to say about that. Samuel, what do you got? Well, speaking of supernatural... um, I've got some more maybe weird stuff to add to the story of the donkey that might enrich uh, our take and journey through the Gospels, if you're okay with that. We like weird. <laughs> Lay it on us. So there's actually this concept within Judaism called uh, Messiah's donkey, and it's this idea of this uh, kind of supernal donkey that has been present since the dawn of creation that has aided the patriarchs and moved through time and like we can connect it, you know, ultimately through Jesus here. So if you want um, some references where the rabbis are connecting all these dots, the first is the binding of Isaac story where it says that Abraham took his son Isaac and readied the donkey to go to the mountain to sacrifice his son. That's in Genesis 22, 3. And then uh, later in the Torah in Exodus, whenever God calls Moses to go to Egypt uh, to liberate the chosen people out of slavery in Exodus 4.20, uh, it says, Moses took his wife and children, set them upon the donkey, not a donkey, but the donkey, and returned <laughs> to the land of Egypt. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if we're connecting traditional Judaism and then following that through Jesus's life, you could say that, hey, maybe this is the same supernal donkey that aided those patriarchs and is uh, showcasing its ultimate service in bringing Jesus to the Holy Land for Passover before his, his death, burial, and resurrection. But what I find, this is a Hebrew word study that's yeah. really cool. So uh, the Hebrew word for donkey is, uh, pardon my pronouncement, Kamor, C-H-A-M-O-R, and it's derived from the word komer, C-H-O-M-E-R. Komer means material. So you have this really cool play on words where you have Messiah who has been pre-existing since before creation has ever been established, descending into the material uh. world, riding on top of a donkey, a Kamor Komer, a material thing that has now elevated itself to a supernal and a loftier goal to uh, serve ah. the Messiah. That's, I just love, love those images, and if you want to read an article about it, we have included a link in our Okie Dokie Notes PDF, so check that out. There you go. Yeah, that's classic. Uh, I had made brief mention of stuff about this in the last episode, and <laughs> now you're bringing the you're bringing the beef, Samuel. So that's what's good. for dinner. That's right. That's good. Yeah. Please. Uh, I mean, it doesn't. It's it's not necessary 
that you go off and read little things like this and walk away going, oh my gosh, that's totally true. That's not the point. The point is little extra materials like this can often give you insight into the mindset of the people who were in the story right here in this day and time. And again, it doesn't matter that you think it's true or false or right or wrong or agree or dis- that it's it's seeing into the people and the time and understanding what's going on. It's interesting stuff, very interesting stuff. So good on you, Samuel. Anything else? No. All right. So here we go. We are moving on in the story. Boy, this is another, it's a big lot of stuff from the gospel. So it's we're looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 to 11, Mark chapter 11, verses 8 to 10, Luke chapter 19, verses 36 to 40, and John chapter 12, verses 12 through 18. But remember, we snipped a couple little verses out of that. So uh, anyway, let's go ahead. And you know what? I think, I think I'm going to read from Luke stay with his storytelling, but I am going to read from all four places just a little bit about, you know, what the crowd was shouting. So anyway, we'll come back and do that. So Luke chapter 19. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All right. So again, I just want to read, because every single one of them is different. I just want to read what the crowd was shouting. In Matthew, it says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And you'll notice, we'll talk a little bit about that word Hosanna. It's kind of weird sort of grammatically, those sentences, phrases, but we're not going to worry too much about it. Uh, But let's see, what does it say? In Mark, it says, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. We already read Luke's. John says, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So, I don't know if you picked up on it, but on all of these, there are, I mean, amazing and, okay, I don't know that we can call it explicit for the person who has not, you know, walked through and and seen how some of this stuff ties together, but in the grand scheme of the story, knowing the people, knowing the thinking, knowing the background, this is really explicit messianic stuff. They p- People are thinking that he is the Messiah. It's kind of cool. So anyway, you got to get the whole picture in your head. You got the disciples, probably a pretty big crowd of those because it isn't just the 12. You've got the crowds that I, I guess you would have to say they're coming from Jerusalem even though they've come to Jerusalem for the festival, they're probably, you know, working their way out of Jerusalem to come see him. Hey, he's on the way. Let's go see. Anyway, they've all got their preconceived ideas of who this Jesus is. I mean, you know, at least the ones that are aware of him. Uh, The whole idea of this Jesus character being the Messiah has been growing over the time. We know a tremendous amount of work out in the Galilee and, you know, these rural areas. But remember, we highlighted how recently in Jerusalem, the last couple of festivals, a lot of people in Jerusalem itself have been getting on board with this whole Messiah train. So so then you have this moment, and, and the crowd, they've obviously been picking up, picking up on all the messianic illusion and 
especially now, like what you were talking about, Samuel, this whole thing of Jesus riding the donkey. It's really important in in the whole, I don't know what you want to call it, like for them, it's like evidence or proof or whatever, right? So anyway, and, and you can imagine these two crowds, you've got Jesus and his entourage, they're kind of heading into the city, and you can imagine residents and visitors in Jerusalem, they're probably heading out of the city, and they meet, and all this joy just breaks out, right? I mean, this is this is it. This is this is like the king. I, it depends on your perspective. Some may may think it's the arrival of the king. Some may think it's a return of a king, or you know, whatever. But you got all these cloaks and palm branches. And Samuel, I'd like you to read something uh, from Second Kings chapter nine, verse thirteen. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Yeah. Now, okay, this is a weird moment. Uh, You have God actually choosing Jehu to be king over Israel, and and then you see it worked out in, you know, every man of of Israel is is, uh, also choosing him to be king. So it's, it's kind of a neat moment. God wants it. Israel wants it, and, and and you've got this idea of garments being laid down. Now you know depends on how you read it, whatever. But this, it's a it's a common connection. A lot of people look back and go, "Hey, yeah, this this matches that," and and it's cool. Uh, the palm branches that was the part for the garments, the cloaks. The palm branches, you know, they were a regular part of welcoming visitors to Jerusalem, and and this would have been true at every pilgrimage. Uh, there, there's kind of a special little part of the Sukkot thing where branches are used, but but it's a part of, of every pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So that's a thing. Uh, you see all that coming down. And then as you read through the Gospels, you if, if you're really trying to be careful and, and specific, sometimes it looks like it's the disciples are the only ones who are really shouting and doing all the stuff, and in other cases it looks like it's the crowds or maybe both. We're not going to worry too much, again, because it's eyewitness account, and you can easily imagine how it could be one or the other or both or whatever. We, we note the discrepancy if if you want to look at it that way, but it, it doesn't appear to be any sort of big deal. But but we've mentioned numerous instances already in our, in our podcast, in this study, where uh, we've made references to Old Testament scriptures, and they were already considered to be, in some way, messianic in nature by, let's just say, Judaism generally, or tradition, or whatever it might be. Well, this is another one. And yet, somehow, here in the apostolic writings, whether it's here in the Gospels or our New Testament, or it could even be things outside the Bible, it seems that this particular psalm, Psalm 118, really became elevated in popularity for having something to do with Messiah. And so this whole thing about, you know, Hosanna, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord, that kind of stuff. Samuel, I want you to read Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray. Hosanna, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Yeah. Now, right there at the beginning where it says, save us, we pray. Okay, that's the part where, like, if you were looking at Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever, you would see Hosanna, Hoshana. Uh, Save us, we pray. And so you can see the connection. I mean, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. it's, It's all there. And just as a point of reference, there's a, they call it the Hallel. It's a group of psalms that get sang at the festivals. Um, a lot of times you have the Levitical choir singing them. At certain points, you may have the actual crowd singing them. So the psalms of the Hallel are 113 to 118. This is the final one. And so that's kind of neat as well. But you can see uh, it's uh, talking about the, the king entering. It's great. And then Matthew tells us that the whole city is stirred up and wondering who he is. Hyperbole? Uh, probably. Yeah, but 
It's also probably a really good image to have in your head. There's probably, you know, some really substantial part of the city and the people there, you know, who are kind of stirred up by this thing. And, you know, we talk about uh, the fact that Jesus is a prophet. The people call him a prophet. I think in Matthew, yeah, the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus, right? Uh, almost as a way of answering, you know, the people, who is this? Who is this? Uh, and then, you know, you have to wonder, did they mean just a prophet or were they meaning the prophet like Moses, you know, the second redeemer, Messiah, all that? I mean, you can't be too sure, but it certainly seems highly possible. They call him the son of David. That's very Messiah-ish, right? All those things. But Luke tells us that the Pharisees want everybody who's shouting, whether that's disciples, crowds, both, whatever, they want them to quit shouting. Hey, I mean, well, I don't know. To me, it's kind of a comical picture. I mean, just imagine any big crowd and and all of them are, you know, they're all on the same page. They're all shouting all this stuff together. And then imagine that there's just a handful of guys off to the side who are going, hey, quit saying that stuff. Hey, you, Jesus, tell them to stop it, right? I mean, it's silly. And, and, and as comical as it may seem, Jesus, this is one of his classic answers, right? If they stopped their shouting, well, the rocks are just going to take over. You can't stop this. And interestingly, that also alludes back to a verse in Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 11, if you want to go see it. But now this is an interesting thing, though. Now, so, so Samuel, we got all these people coming in, they're praising, right, doing all this stuff. And Jesus says, hey, if I stop them, the rocks are going to cry out. So what is it that most people imagine that these rocks are going to be doing? Going to be shouting praises to Jesus coming through Jerusalem. Exactly. And you know what? Totally understandable. Not a thing wrong with that image. But I just think it's really interesting to point out that back in Habakkuk, the rocks were actually crying out because of injustice and iniquity. And so I think this adds something to this already very cool image because the Pharisees, at least in part, some of the Pharisees, and and to be fair, definitely the Sadducees, as they were most of the leadership and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But all of these guys, they have been the source of some injustice and iniquity right there within their own nation. And so it because the Pharisees were saying, hey, you need to shut them up. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? If I did that, even the rocks would cry out. It isn't just praise, but it's the injustice and the iniquity mm-hmm. and the very thing that Messiah is coming to fix. I just, I love that picture. So cool. Yeah. And so John, he ends up telling us that the disciples don't even really get what was happening while it was happening, which is weird. I mean, the other gospels seem to make it kind of sound like they are, but but John says that they really only understood it in hindsight. And, I, you know, I would say this, again, don't judge too harshly. And I know for me personally, this whole idea of finally understanding things only in hindsight yeah, that's pretty much the story of my life. So, um, you know, don't don't cut them down. It, 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 it had to be a lot harder than it looks. So anyway, uh, good news is they wrote all this stuff down for us after they understood what was going on. So at least we get a good image, good picture. And then John adds one more interesting bit. Uh, why exactly were the crowds there to see Jesus? Well, John says it's because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so, uh, you know, the crowd that was there when Jesus raised Lazarus, they had been witnessing. They continued to witness about that whole episode. And so it was, you know, spreading the news, getting people excited about this potential Messiah. Anyway, all I can say is that's a whole lot of detail and a whole lot of you know different information, etc., spread across the four Gospels. So I don't know. Kind of interesting, kind of fun. Definitely. And just to give a little bit more space to defend the disciples that they may not have gotten what was happening in the current moment, I'm just thinking of the image, how disorienting and confusing it could have been 
to be in that moment with that multitude of people who were all swarming around Jesus coming into the holy city on that donkey, you know, lots shouting these praises, maybe others shouting curses and uh, revolts against him. Um, And, like, I'm just trying to think if I was present here in the 21st century, let's say I've gone to some rally. Uh, I'm not saying that that the... what was happening in Jesus's time was a protest. I'm just saying in today's day, we see multitudes of people showing up for rallies, for protests, for things that they are supporting or they're against. And there's just a lot of times there's pandemonium just through the sheer number of people. So um, I I know that it probably would have been very uh, sensitive sensation sensitive overwhelming for me to be able to uh take everything in in a coherent way as it was transpiring yeah had to be crazy and you know what i'm going to actually plant a seed for later if we ever do any more of the new testament i'm assuming at some point we'll we'll finish the gospels (laughs) but this whole idea of a king entering into a city in triumph super popular among many cultures. Obviously, Rome was the dominant culture. We see all that kind of stuff. I get that. But but the whole idea of crowds welcoming a king. Uh, now, now usually it's returning after battle or that kind of stuff, and I don't know that that is a perfect fit here, but all of that imagery fits. And, and I think still everything you're saying, Samuel, is true. It has to be just kind of crazy, kind of nuts, pandemonium, right? But... But, Mm -hmm. you know, on the whole, in a good way. It's kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Let's see what happens from here. All right. Well, we're going to take a sharp turn. Oh, great. Yeah. So he's on his donkey. They're riding down from the mount. People are meeting up. All of this shouting going on. Let's go. Luke is the only one who tells us about this part of the story. So we're going to read in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44 says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. Where'd all the happy, happy joy, joy go? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of rough. But this is uh, this is really good and important stuff. So, again, Luke alone is the one who sort of fills us in on this uh, incredible moment, I would call it, when Jesus, it's like he's taking in a view of the city. Now, I haven't personally been there, although I may get to go next year. Yeah. He, he takes in a view of the city. They say that about halfway down your walk from the mount toward Jerusalem— that's when you get the full view of the city. And so, you know, right or wrong, people speculate that, oh, well, this must have been it. He was on his way down, and, and when he got that full view, that's when it hit him. Now, now imagine, you got to remember, Jesus, I mean, he's a Jew, like full on. He's, he's a Jew. He loved the Jewish people, probably more than anyone else. I mean, that's just, that's how the story goes, right? He loved the people. He loved the city of Jerusalem. I mean, after all, it is going to be the place from which he reigns, right? In the kingdom. Uh, he loved the city. He loved the temple. It was his father's house. It's all good. And for whatever it's worth, at this particular moment in time, that temple was magnificent. I mean, you hear people talk about wonders of the world or great temples that existed in Rome. And all. I mean, this had to be up there. 
the, the stuff that Herod had done, etc. This is pretty amazing. But Jesus loved it all. And he sees it. But he knows that there's trouble coming. And he ends up, I would call it prophecy. He speaks of what is to come, and he does it with some pretty stunning detail. He tells them what God has planned. So first, he laments that the the nation had, and, and again, we have to say generally, the nation of Israel had not understood, and they had not heeded the call to repentance. So Jesus's message, the gospel, what's the gospel, Samuel? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Exactly. These are the things that make for peace. Jesus's message, repentance itself, you know, it's like restoring that relationship with God. They hadn't understood, they hadn't heeded, and it was now too late. Even the ability to recognize Jesus as Messiah I mean, this is going to be hidden from Israel generally. And it's very similar to, uh, what does Paul speak of, Samuel? The partial hardening mm-hmm. uh, in, in Romans eleven twenty five. There it is. This partial hardening that Paul speaks of, very similar to, to what Jesus is talking about here. They're just not going to be able to see the thing that is right before their eyes. And this, of course, also is talking about the current exile, the one that we all live in right now. I mean, it's, it's Israel's exile, but as we are grafted in and in some sense a part of the commonwealth of Israel, this is our exile. And, and now many count the exile as actually beginning at 70 AD when the temple is destroyed at that moment in time. But Jesus is, you know, he's speaking of it here, the beginning of it here, and it's just, it's amazing. Uh, But Jesus describes the siege and the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, and it's uh, approximately 40 years away. These Gospels, they're written, well, not John's, but uh, the, the three synoptic Gospels written before the temple is destroyed, uh, but also, I don't know if you know this, Samuel, when Rome came in and they, they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and all of that, that was also around Passover time. Weird connection. Uh, but anyway, Jesus is describing all of this with amazing detail. The Romans did indeed surround the city. Uh, many were trapped inside, and these were families. I mean, there were you know elderly, children, uh, and everything. Uh, there are stories, I'm not going to recount them because they get they, they're very gruesome, but there's stories of sal- starvation, there's cannibalism, uh, just all kinds of stuff. The city was, over time, actually raised, to, and that's R-A-Z-E-D, it was taken down, you know, and so that whole not a stone upon another, all that, I mean, it was utterly destroyed. But then Jesus explains why. You did not know the time of your visitation. Now, it's real easy to think, oh yeah, Messiah visited from heaven to earth, right? And and it's not that that's wrong, wrong, but just understand there is a history of that phrase, the time of your visitation, and the time of your visitation is more about judgment than it is about uh, the advent of Messiah, okay? And so, Jesus explains, you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not understand that your time of judgment was right before you. You had the opportunity to repent, but you did not do it. And so they didn't recognize the time of their judgment. And so the communication that's coming here, it's kind of twofold. First, there's the idea that, as we just said, they didn't really come to the knowledge or understanding of a real need for a national repentance. And and I mean, you could say even with the advent of Messiah, which you would think would have made it possible, but it didn't. But they didn't really do it. And then the second thing is that they, Israel, are the vineyard, and they hadn't produced fruit for the owner of the vineyard, which is God. And, and so their national calling was left unfulfilled. And so, uh, obviously, that should remind you of a parable or two that we've already covered. But 
in the middle of all this joy and triumph and celebration, all that you want to call it, Jesus is just weeping over the city and proclaiming that you guys just don't get it. Your end is near. And then, of course, it comes in 70 AD. Yeah, for sure. Um, And while you were reading this section, my mind was reeling because I'm thinking, wait, this sounds familiar to some other place in the Gospels where it seems like he's weeping or grieving over Jerusalem. And I did a quick search, and it's I guess this is kind of a question for you, Paul. Um, the Hosanna account that we read previously in Matthew, that happened in Matthew 21. Uh, but then later uh-huh. in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, um, that subsection, depending on which translation you use, Mine says grieving over Jerusalem, and I'll just read this real quick, and then maybe we can hash it out from there. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." Now, are we to treat those as the same account, just written differently, or did he do that two different occasions? Well, um, let me let me look at something real quick. Okay, I can't find out which day it was. I'm pretty certain that we're going to address this on a different day. So what, what we're going to do, it, because it's so long and drawn out, it may take us a bit to for you to see it, but we're going to try to note when we're in each day of the final week. So this is a different day, a different situation. He's actually, in this particular section, well, actually, I bet you in your Bible, if you scroll up, it's probably even got some sort of a subtitle in there, something about the seven woes. Mm -hmm. And and so he's actually speaking to a a different group at the time, but we'll... uh, yeah, I, I'm going with it's different, but obviously similar, and I think it's even going to happen on a different day. Okay. But it's good. And what, do you remember when was the other time that Jesus wept? Uh, when Lazarus died. Yeah. Not that that's particularly relevant, but I'm just saying. <laughs> he didn't cry much. That's what, that's my point. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Is that... I? Uh, man, sorry. We just have to wait. No, I... I mean, knowing us, it'll be a couple of months before we get there. (laughs) No, I think it was helpful. I I think when I saw the connection, I was like, it has to be different because even the tonality between Jesus' words from the two gospel accounts are different. Like, in the Matthew version, he's almost showcasing even more compassion and uh, empathy to the chosen people, saying, like, I wanted to gather you all in from my coming and and here in the Luke version I'm not saying he's not compassionate because he's weeping but he just kind of goes straight into like <laughs> you're going to experience all this hardship because you missed your opportunity so yeah uh, and you know I actually think this whole idea of the destruction of Jerusalem and all those things we're going to hear Jesus talk about that even more than even the one you pointed out so uh it's yeah there, there's much more to come. So, boy. All right, well, let's keep going. Uh, what's our next little part here? This is super tiny. This is a little snippet from John chapter 12, verse 19. It just says this. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Okay, so... I mean, it's kind of weird. Notice what it says. The Pharisees were saying this to each other. I mean, you can hear it. It's it's almost like there's uh, maybe a bit of resignation or maybe there's finger pointing or I don't know. Maybe you've got a few Pharisees that are on Jesus's side and they're talking to the other Pharisees who aren't and they're going, don't you get it? You're messing up, dude. You can't stop this. I don't know. I don't know how this is all going, but somehow 
you know, they've wanted to. Maybe maybe we could say in, in other ways they've tried to stop this guy, shut him up, whatever. But their efforts have produced no fruit. And, and, and now I know it says, look, the world has gone after him. All right. Samuel, hyperbole? Survey says, most likely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, all they're saying is that the crowds that believe in him are getting bigger and bigger. And I would think from from everything that I've read and, you know, I, people, they're trying their best, trying to figure this out, trying to put numbers on things. The lowest numbers I've seen would have said, hey, this crowd that we're talking about, okay, it only would have numbered in the hundreds. And then some others who are a little more optimistic, they've said, hey, you know, these crowds that are, you know, out here on the, the coming down from the Mount toward Jerusalem, it could have been thousands. But even when we say that, we're probably talking single digits and probably even low single digits. This, this isn't huge, huge numbers. And at the same time, it's not like, you know, nobody. So, I mean, it's, it's a big crowd, just not a huge crowd. Uh, anyway, if they haven't been able to stop him up to now and, and, and this big of a crowd is following... Well, their their point is just to say, you know what? It may as well be the whole world following him because these Pharisees and whatever they're trying to do to stop him, they would be just as effective, which is basically saying they weren't effective at all. They can't stop this thing. But anyway, that's all on that. Yeah, and maybe I'm reading into the text too much, but I'm getting a sense as if there could be some inadvertent prophecy going on with what these Pharisees who are against Jesus saying and look the world has gone after him like later down the road with the gospel message being taken from Jerusalem and going into you know Samaria Asia and then the ends of the earth in the same way that that high priest from previous in uh, episodes where we talked about he was you know showing his open opposition to Jesus but he didn't realize at the time that he was actually speaking prophecy about you know Jesus's right. life and influence it could be happening here too. Yeah, that's a really good point. For them it was hyperbole cuz you know they were just standing around talking about it, but in reality we see that wow. They ended up being right and it wasn't hyperbole Mm. that the whole world did indeed end up going after him that's good point samuel i like that i like that a lot all right so now we got something a little weird here um we're going to go on we're going to be reading from matthew chapter 21 verses 12 through 17 we got a little bit here from mark chapter 11 verse 11 but in this case matthew's going to be telling us about jesus you know clearing the temple cleansing the temple whatever you want to call it and, and we're going to go ahead and talk about it here because Matthew has it occurring on the same day when Jesus arrives. But we're also going to talk about it later because Mark, I think it is, we'll have to see when we get there. I'm pretty sure it was Mark who uh, he has it happening the next day. Mark and Luke, I think. Well, anyway, we'll see that when we get there. I reserve the right to be wrong because it's not sitting in front of me. <laughs> anyway, let's read this. We'll go ahead and read from Matthew because he's got the, the full story. Uh, and talk about that. Here we go. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, Mark, when he tells it, he just has him basically looking around at everything and and then leaving immediately. So anyway, let's talk about this. 
So Mark has us uh, going, uh, Jesus going into Jerusalem, and just to point it out, he entered through the eastern gate. I mean, when you come down from the mountain into the city, that's where you go. Uh, from entering the eastern gate, you're in Solomon's colonnade. That's kind of a common picture we'll see later in Acts, etc. But he looks around, he kind of checks things out, and then he leaves because it's late in the day, and he heads for Bethany. Do you remember remember who's in Bethany, Samuel? Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's right. And this is a good indicator of how these initial days of Passover probably went. Jesus is staying in Bethany, so he's going to make a trip into Jerusalem each morning, and he's going to make a trip back to Bethany each evening. And, you know, the the uh, I say assumption, but but many, many are convinced that he is staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, and that's, you know, totally believable, makes sense, all that. Uh, we may find something that's explicit about it, but we're going to, uh, this is where we are, so we're going to hold for a second. But anyway, Matthew, he's got this whole different story. And it's kind of weird because, Samuel, when we were reading it, didn't it sound like we'd heard that story before? Yeah, I was like, I thought we'd done this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's way back, way back in John chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And and this was Jesus clearing the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. It was right after he turned water to wine. How long ago was that? But here he is doing the exact same thing again at the end of his ministry, right after the triumphal entry. And so, Samuel, I mean, you've asked questions very similar to this, like, on this particular episode of the podcast. Are we really supposed to think that he did this twice? Well, when we look at the text, I mean, there are a few minor differences, nothing, nothing major. You know, the way that he interacts with the officials is, you know, pretty different in the John 2 version versus this. Uh, In that first story, I don't know if you remember, Jesus made a whip of cords. There's nothing like that here. And then, I mean, you know, if you're if you're believing the the who's writing what where when i mean there's this major major difference we're approximately 3 years apart and so that's not a whole lot to go on especially when the stories are so similar but all i can say is that most scholars you know what they're really comfortable with the idea that this is just two separate events it is odd you know i i don't know but let's just say we're okay with it too. I mean, we know that as Jesus was teaching, he probably said some of the same things over and over and over again. And and everything about teaching was all about not just the words, but whenever you could bring in some sort of real life example, point to things, visual things, things you experience, all that. It was that was the way to teach. And so maybe he's just doing this again. Uh, I don't know. It's weird, but we accept it. Now, in the first story, in John 2, and this, I think, is a really cool connection. Jesus makes this statement, Samuel, and and it it caused some controversy back in the day, but let's forget about that because you can always go back and listen to that. Let's think about the connection to now. In the first story, in John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, he didn't say that here, but in this particular case, what's about to happen in just a few days, Samuel? Mm. His death and resurrection in three days. Yeah, they're going to destroy that temple, that is, Jesus' body, and in three days, it's going to be raised up. This, I mean, that is a cool and important connection between these two stories. So, I just wanted to point that out. Maybe one of the reasons that Jesus did it twice or the disciples decide to tell us about it in the Gospels twice or, you know, whatever it is, that connection about the destruction of the temple, the the crazy stir that it caused when he said it the first time and how that's actually how this is all going to end up the second time. It's just kind of crazy. But anyway, uh, oh, look, I wrote myself a note. Mark's going to have this whole cleansing the temple thing happening tomorrow, so we'll we'll address that more when we get there. But anyway, after chasing a bunch of people out, Jesus also 
spend some time healing the blind and the lame. They're probably just, you know, laying around all inside the temple courts, you know, all around there. Not not like inside, but the outer courts, whatever. And so uh, as you, I, I can, I'm sure you can imagine, uh, maybe you would even expect it, you've already got this crowd. They're, they're all, hey, Jesus is great, whatever. Well, he starts healing people, blind and lame people. Obviously, the fervor of the crowd is only going to increase. But you really got to try to picture this scene. Uh, you're, you're in this temple court. You've got the crowds of people believing that their long-awaited Messiah has finally come. They're witnessing these miracles, which we've pointed out time and time again. All of these miracles are signs of that long-awaited kingdom. You've got kids running around shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, which is just another way of saying, save us, Messiah, or the Messiah is here to save us, or however you might interpret that. Now, I, I got to say, if you're thinking of the Wizard of Oz movie, if the Scarecrow had been there, he would have said it. Oh, joy, rapture at this very moment, right? I mean, this is this is a big moment. And now, in the midst of all that, picture the chief priests and the scribes. <laughs> I mean, they're witnessing all of this. They're literally standing in the midst of all of this. And what's their response? They're indignant. I mean, they... They are passionately angry. They're exasperated. I mean, in their eyes, this whole scene is, it's, it's unjust. It's, it's wrong. It's messed up. But Jesus, who had often tried to hide his identity. How many times have we talked about that, Samuel? He, did it. he lets them just keep saying it. He, I mean, I don't know, but, you know, I'm just going to say he's loving it. This is great. And and in a way, by him not shutting them down, you know, it's we call it a soft endorsement. It's like him saying, no, man, they're right, you know. But I think this brings up a bit of a life lesson for all of us, you know, looking at these chief priests and scribes. Look, and, and maybe you've experienced this in your life. I, I don't know. I just want to say you don't have to accept every single thing that you see happening within churches and, and you know, the body of Christ and all this kind of Because you know what? There is a lot of goofiness out there, okay? Some people just manufacture things and they get all emotional and hypey. And, okay, you don't have to accept it all. I'm totally on page with you there. But, you know, always be a little bit open because, you know, in the face of God actually moving and working among men, when something really is going on and God still does stuff in men on the earth, okay, don't be Debbie Downer. Don't be Negative Nancy, Bernie Bummer, Johnny Raincloud. Don't be a bitter bear, a suckopotamus, a buzzkill, a party pooper, a stick in the mud. Don't drink the haterade, okay? Just leave room for God to be working at times. And, you know, also, it's it's like a cautious sort of skepticism. You know, don't don't buy in to the goofiness either when that's all that's going on, okay? So anyway... Uh, now, similar to uh, during the triumphal entry itself, the thing is, these Pharisees, they want to stop Jesus from doing all this stuff. Do you hear what these are saying? But Jesus replies with a quote from Psalm 8-2. And I find this so interesting that Jesus is actually quoting the Septuagint version. At least that's the way it's presented here in the gospel text. I don't know. I find that interesting. In the Hebrew... What he quotes, it actually uses the word strength. But in the Greek, in the Septuagint, it used the word praise. So, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared strength, or you have prepared praise. And Jesus, he goes with the praise part. So, I don't know. I just think it's cool. It's like the rocks crying out reference from earlier. Uh, this this also alludes to more than just praise. Because in the psalm, the enemy and the avenger are 
stilled. And so before, you know, it was about crying out over injustice and iniquity, that kind of thing. Here, it's he's referring back to the enemy, the avenger being stilled. So I love these, these sort of dual meanings that are in there. Of course, praise is the obvious connotation. We get that in both cases, but these secondary meanings are really good. Both of them together, powerful, given the context of this Passover week. Praise is, of course, appropriate, but underlying it, what we see is that victory is at hand. And and I just think, again, hindsight for us is so easy. We know what this week is all about. We know what happens at the end, and Jesus is entering in, and he's fighting back against the naysayers with these scriptures that are pointing out victory. I just, that's just such a beautiful image to me. So anyway, we get this final little bit where Matthew gives us the the similar insights about this daily travel to and from Bethany. Just wanted to point that out again, because it's going to be, you know, an obvious prominent part of the story. So anyway, there you go, Samuel. What do you think about all that? I think it's convicting and very, it's telling again to show the heart and character of the chief priests and the scribes in this moment. Uh, like, like you have Jesus doing something that is universally good in terms of prioritizing life, uh, alleviating suffering, and yet they still have a problem with it. And I, I'm 100% I'm not trying to get political at all. I'm just trying to use an example that maybe people can connect to in our current day. It would be as if, like, you know, let's say you have one side of our U.S. government, like the Biden administration does something to alleviate human suffering, or we could put the Trump agency in there and they do something to prioritize life and alleviate suffering. And you're going to have people say like, you know, I'm against that because like, that's not my president. Biden's not my president or Trump's not my president. Like it's the same example here. Like the, their issue wasn't with what was being done. Their issue was with who was doing it. They had a problem with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, And I just, I think that's so important to remind ourselves that, they had this image of who they wanted Messiah to be. Jesus was not showcasing that, and they refused to give in. That's a really good way to think of it, Samuel, and it's so true. We need to be as objective as we can possibly be when we view things happening in life. And you know, like, like you said, if, if you hate a thing, a good thing, just because of where it came from or who started it or, you know, whatever. Okay, you know what? That's just dumb. Stop it. Judge things on their actual merit. And you know what? Is it possible that people have ulterior motives behind the thing? Sure. And can we sort of rail against that and at the same time enjoy and and endorse the, the good things? Say, yeah, we can do all those things. So, you know what? Be on the side of good. Give people the benefit of the doubt, and don't don't be the thing you hate. Mm-hmm. How about that? It's all good. Stuff. Yeah. How very Jewish of you. Yeah. Hey, uh, did you have a favorite negative uh, moniker, title, whatever from my list from earlier? Oh, I uh, I don't know if I've ever heard uh, "Don't drink the haterade." So I, I kind of like that. <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> I think my favorite was the uh, succopotamus. <laughs> yeah. I haven't heard that one either. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what possessed me to, to to go through that list, but boy, once I started finding them, it was like, these are great. I had to share. So anyway. Hey, you're just like a mushroom. You're just being a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, hey, you know what else I'm going to be? Saying goodbye. We're done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and be sure to leave us ratings and reviews to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. Please feel free to send us any questions or comments at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved 
a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.